Chapter Twenty Two of Gargoyles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Gargoyles by Ben Hecht. Chapter Twenty Two. The children were asleep, and Henrietta was reading. Basine, in his slippers and smoking jacket, sat unoccupied. Their new house worried him. He had not yet familiarized himself with its shadows. He smiled as he watched his wife. He was going to run for senator, but that made no difference to her. He was a husband to her, and everything else was incidental. He thought of Ruth. Her name no longer depressed him. During the first three or four months that followed her absence, he had felt as if his career had ended. There was nobody to succeed for any more. Then through Doris he had learned that she was to marry Schroeder. The information had cured him. He had been despising himself for letting her go. Now he was able to pretend that he had been forced by her virtue to relinquish her. It would have been a dastardly thing to do, ruin her and prevent her from marrying and living a decent life. Her marrying vindicated his own virtue. He was able to think that he had done the right thing. Not only that, but he had done the only thing possible. She had fled from him because he was a married man. Then, too, she probably didn't love Schroeder. Not as she had loved him. She was marrying him broken-heartedly. He sometimes played with this notion. It pleased him. His sadness at the thought of her in another man's arms was mitigated by the twofold thought that her heart was broken and that she was in reality embracing marriage and not a man. He no longer desired her. He was too busy, for one thing. Still, things were different. She had been an inspiration. Now he went on with his plans and his climb without feeling the excitement that had filled him during their year together. There was no one in front of whom to pose. This made posing a rather thankless business. And he became practical in his thoughts, less dramatic in his lies. Henrietta had put aside her paper and was looking at him. "'Are you tired?' she asked. He shook his head. He began to think about her. What did she do all day? Since Ruth had left, his desire to leave his wife had vanished. He paused, confused. She was weeping. "'What's the matter?' he asked. She lowered her head. "'Nothing,' she said. A vivid memory hurt him. He remembered kissing her for a first time in his mother's kitchen years ago. It seemed now that she had been alive and beautiful that evening. That was gone. "'Has anything happened?' he asked softly. Her head shook. He came to her side and looked at her. He felt helpless. What was there to make her cry? "'I don't know, George.' she said, as if answering his silent question. "'Please forgive me. I just started to cry for nothing.' "'Worried about something?' he pressed. He felt guilty. 
she was crying because of the things he had done but what had he done nothing wrong he had put the wrong things out of his life and for her sake why should she weep about that then he was the one to weep and she had her children her father was alive he remained silent recounting what he tried to consider anti-weeping reasons nothing george she answered i'm i'm just getting old he frowned and turned away later when they lay in bed he took her in his arms she had apparently forgotten about her tears and their curious explanation but he began to talk to her old he whispered you're not getting old don't be silly at least no more than i am i'm older than you he held her close to him and his mind embraced a memory that was not his wife he held but someone else a vivacious happy girl ten years ago no more than that almost fourteen years ago he lay remembering another henrietta a charming delightful child he had never been in love with her this he knew but the knowledge had slowly died when he embraced her at night a dream obscured his memory the dream was that he had once loved her that she had once been beautiful that his heart had once sung with a desire for her he played with this dream it was a make-believe that saddened him yet it made the moment more tolerable sometimes it even brought a curious happiness his dream would pretend that the scrawny figure he was holding had once filled him with ecstasies his dream would whisper to him that he had once idolized her and that once once he would lie editing his sterile memories of her into glowing once upon a times and when his kisses sought her cold lips it would be to this dream henrietta they gave themselves a henrietta who had never been it was sad to pretend in this way that his great love had died and that his beautiful one had faded but it was not as sad as to remember when he kissed her that there had never been anything he felt tired when he left the house the next morning the business of preening for the senatorial race annoyed him the goal lured but the details to be managed were aggravating he started as he opened the door of his chambers ruth he stood looking at her without words she was pale and there was something curious about her she didn't look the same you look surprised she smiled he noticed how spiritless she was but you don't mind my coming here do you i've been trying to get you she turned her eyes away he had finally discovered the change a physical one well he exclaimed i hadn't heard the good news how's paul so she was married and had kept it secret he smiled he remembered other scenes in the room the doors locked her arms around him all that was over now 
Before her motherhood, even the memory of it seemed less certain. "'There is no good news,' she was saying. "'I've come to see if you can help me.' They sat down. Basine nodded. "'Money. Poor girl. Schroeder was always an ass about things.' "'He's gone away,' she went on. "'And—and and I'd like to locate him.' "'Who?' "'Paul.' She covered her face. So he had deserted her, and she had come back to him. A momentary excitement entered his thought, but he frowned immediately. It was distasteful to think of what might have been if—not for this. An amazement came into his eyes. He stared at her as she talked. She had been ruined by Schroeder, and he had never married her and when she had refused medical interference, he had calmly left the city. He listened blankly and could think of nothing to say. "'Oh, George, you must help me.' Help her? He must help her. After she had lived with this man for months, giving herself to him. He stood up and walked down the room. It was like he used to do, pace up and down in front of her. He wanted to talk, but he found it hard. A rage was coming into his mind that obscured his words. The rage continued. Pausing in the center of the room, Basine began to swear. His voice had grown high-pitched. "'Damn!' he shouted at her. "'And you came to me. Me! You bring your filthy sins to me!' damn his dirty soul yes you're fine you are leaving me to go with that chippy chaser i thought i thought you were somebody he stopped his fist in the air she was walking away ruth he called after her listen wait a minute the door closed after her basine stood watching the door she would open it and come back. But the door remained shut. He seated himself at his desk. Moments passed, and he was surprised to wake up and hear himself mumbling. The dirty skunk! I'll wring his neck! She had given herself to Schroeder, not married him. The part he had played in her ruin forced itself with a nauseating insistency into Basine's mind. His memories seized him. He struggled, but the things he knew leaped out of hiding places and assaulted him. She had loved him, and he had loved her. Life had seemed marvelous with her close to him. His career, his day, its simplest detail had been colored with delicious excitement. But he had been afraid to reach out and take what he wanted. It would have meant success happiness and something else the word beauty withheld itself it would have meant these things but he had feared possession he had let her go away after kissing her and telling her that he loved her so she had gone walking in the street and fallen into the arms of the first man she met it was plain 
Basine writhed under triumphant accusations. A torment filled him. He must escape from the accusations. He pried himself away from his thoughts and took his place on the bench. Other people's troubles again. Disputes, wrangles, testimonies. His ears listened mechanically. Lawyers were pleading with him. Witnesses were stammering. He sat with a scowl and hunched forward in his chair. His lean face thrust itself at the courtroom. Thoughts too intolerable for his attention whirled sickeningly in a background. Pictures of Ruth in the man's arms, of her surrender, of the intimacies of their illicit fair forced themselves upon him. He loved her. "'Oh, damn him!' sang itself darkly through his heart. There was one mocking intruder that raised a vociferous head. "'You might have had her, not he. She might have been yours if you hadn't been afraid. It was this that nauseated most. Not Schroeder's villainy, but his own cowardice. He had lost through cowardice. The day dragged itself along. He had recovered in part the rage which protected him from the intolerable memories. When he left the courtroom, it was with a viciousness in his step. His feet stamped down as he walked, as if they were attacking the pavements. He entered a saloon several blocks from the city hall. The place was almost deserted. A few businesslike looking men were grouped before the long bar. They were laughing. Basine passed them, and a voice called his name. He turned and saw a familiar face in one of the small booths against the wall. It was Levine, the newspaper man. "'Hello, Judge. Come on over and sit down.' Basine narrowed his eyes. The man was partially drunk. His drawn face, usually pale, was flushed and his sneering black eyes were bloodshot. He sat down opposite Levine with a greeting. A waiter brought drinks. "'What's up, Judge? You seem rather low,' Levine laughed quietly. "'The world been falling on your nose? <laughs> Have another. Here, waiter!' They sat drinking, the newspaperman lost in a mysterious excitement that gathered in his voice. The excitement soothed Basine. The drinks brought a haze into his mind. He became aware that the man was talking about his sister. He was leaning forward, a black forelock over his bloodshot eye, his arm thrown out on the table, and talking in a languorous voice about Doris. "'Drowning my troubles, Judge,' he was saying. It's easier to drink yourself into forgetfulness than to lie yourself into forgetfulness, eh? And besides, you grow sick of lying, eh? Nobody lies more than me, and I know, I know. But it ain't my fault. She's gone mad about him. You know him, Lindstrom, the poet? Been mad about him for years. And it gets worse. That's all that's the matter with her. He ran away years ago, and she's gotten a phobia about people. Because he's the people's poet. Ha! She's told me about you, George. 
Got an idea of making this man Lindstrom sick by showing him how rotten people are. And using you. See? But where do I come in? Nowhere. Nowhere. Just gabbing for years, and I don't come in nowhere. Get me? This damn newspaper drool has eaten into me. She's the only one I wanted. But I don't come in, see? She's mad, gone mad. Basine's thought avoided the man's words. He sat with a blissful vacuity. They drank till it grew night. Basine, as if recalling himself, walked out. The newspaperman lay across the table, his head asleep on his arm. The night was cool. A curious impulse to let go came to Basine. He would go somewhere and find women and noise. He walked along, thinking about this. When he had walked for an hour, the impulse was gone. The haze was slipping from him. He recalled things Levine had said, something about Lindstrom, the poet. His mind played with Lindstrom. He had seen him where? Oh, yes, long ago. That was before he'd become famous. Now he was a great poet. Hell with everything. Get the senatorship and let things slide. He walked along toward his home. Henrietta would be asleep. He sighed. The night was cool. Everything all right in the morning. Now everything all wrong. But in the morning... His stride quickened. He felt half asleep, and as he moved over the deserted pavement, he began mumbling, I love you, George. I love you. End of chapter 22 Recording by Roger Moline